We are going to be in Matthew chapter 5. If you brought a Bible, you want to follow along in your own Bible or on your Bible app. Otherwise, pull out your notes here, your Amazing Love notes, and you can follow along in those. There are pens in the seat backs in front of you if you want to use those. Matthew 5 comes from the Sermon on the Mount, very famous people, a sermon that many people know about. But not just here, but throughout the three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, 7, those three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, where we find Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, longest sermon that we have recorded of Jesus in the Bible, Jesus says, frankly, some things that sound absolutely bonkers, crazy. And we're going to study one of them today. And, but it's not isolated. Um, things, crazy things Jesus said. Starting out in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts with, to be persecuted is to be blessed. What does that mean? Most of us would raise our hands to be blessed that way. I think probably not. Jesus goes on to say, just being angry with a, a brother or sister, or how many of us haven't done this on the road with a driver? Raising your fist to someone and saying, you fool! That puts you in danger of hell, Jesus says. Not murdering someone. He starts out with, you shall not murder. But I, I'm telling you, if you call someone an idiot on the road, you've murdered them. Mmm. I think I've murdered a few people along the way. Uh, here's how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I want you to think about that. Many of you have heard that verse. Some of you memorized that verse in elementary school, and you don't really think too hard about what Jesus meant. Be perfect even as your heavenly Father. Just be as perfect as God. That's how Jesus kind of ends the sermon. <laughs> what? In, in our culture, we constantly go, go around saying, well, no one is perfect, and yet here's Jesus saying, no, 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 be perfect as God. So when you hear this today, just know that this is in the midst of kind of a, a lot of crazy stuff, and that's what makes it a hard saying of Jesus but I hope you go away today with a better understanding of why Jesus says this and why he says it the way that he does. So with that, I'm going to open up my Bible to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read the portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we want to study together today. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I think what makes words like this stand out so much is we're coming at this as we must come at it with the understanding of who we really are. There's a a pastor I like to listen to his messages once in a while named Timothy Keller, and his statement is this, our heart is an idol factory, meaning there's nothing we're better at as human beings at worshiping anything else but God. And, And we need to be clear about that. And and one of the ramifications of our hearts being idol factories, constantly putting other things in the place of God, which is the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and yet, as Keller says, we're constantly making other gods in our lives. One of the ramifications of that is we'd prefer to follow those other gods than the one true God. And when it comes to everlasting life or having a relationship with God, this heart that makes idols wants us to also be frontiersmen, not going along the very broad path or what Jesus calls the narrow path, not, not going along that through Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb to God, but hey, Give me an axe, I'll carve my own way to God, my own way to heaven, as if I'm Daniel Boone. I know that's hard to start with. This is not great news for us, that we're born into the world wanting to turn our backs on the true God and follow other gods and create our own ways. In Africa, when I was a missionary there, one of the most famous things was there's only one heaven, but there are many ways to that one heaven. Well, how's Jesus going to deal with our hearts being idol factories? How's he going to deal with our hearts wanting to be spiritual Daniel Boone's carving our own way through the wilderness. One of the ways that he does that is to say, well, let's, let's take an honest look at ourselves. And let's, let's ask ourselves just this one simple question. Those commandments that were given by Moses 1,450 years before Jesus, so a lot of centuries have gone by, Maybe some of the people standing here listening to this Sermon on the Mount are thinking, well, that's ancient. Why would we listen to Moses anymore? Why would we listen to those laws that were, that were fine for the children of Israel some 1,500 years ago? We're modern people. We've learned a lot in those 1,500 years. We, we know how to make our own rules now which is really 
Nothing more than what Satan said to Adam and Eve in the garden. Why are you not eating from that beautiful tree over there? Well, because God said so. And Satan's response, why are you listening to him? You can be your own God. You can make your own rules. You can be in control of your own life. Just go eat that fruit. It'll be fine. And as we know, it wasn't fine. And it brought death to the world. Now, that was long ago at the very beginning of the world, but let's talk about today. Do we sometimes hear, this book is no longer relevant? The, the laws that were given to Israel, and as we're hearing, reinforced through Jesus Christ, haven't we learned a lot in the 2,000 years since Jesus? Aren't we more modern people? Don't we know better now than what Jesus and Moses knew? Does this even still apply to us today? Last night, I delivered this same message to the high school kids. And I, and I said to them, look, you're in high school now. It's not long, and you're going to be in college. And one of the key messages that you'll hear in college, at whatever university you go to almost, unless it's a Christian university, you're going to hear, why are you still listening to that? And then after college, we hear it. And if it's not said out loud, those of you know who are in the work world that if you were to bring this up as something to really be listened to amongst many of your coworkers, they would roll their eyes. They might never say one word, but the message is clear. Why are you still cracking that dry, dusty old book? Why do you think it applies to you or to life or to me? But I want you to look at Jesus. As I said, some 1,500 or so, I'm rounding, years after Moses was given this law by God in the Ten Commandments, Jesus comes along, preaches the Sermon on the Mount, not directed only at those disciples that he had called to follow him, but directed at the big crowd that came to listen to Jesus teach. And he brings that old law back out. He brings it out and he kind of dusts it off. Remember what you've heard taught? Do you think it doesn't apply to you? Actually, it applies in ways that you've never even dreamt of. You people, you think of actions when God brings his law. I've never murdered anyone. I've, I've never actually slept with someone who's not my wife. So I'm in the clear. And then Jesus start, starts talking about, you know, how they drove their chariots and shaking their fists at the guy in the next chariot over who was blocking them. And he starts talking like he's going to talk here. Let's read the very first verse. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, if Jesus is going to roll on that, what do we know that he knows? He knows that that law has not gone away for that large crowd of people that are sitting on the hill 
probably fumbling with the grass around them. Maybe they have a little snack or something, and they're listening to this Sermon on the Mount with their cup of coffee in their hand. Jesus says, let's talk about some of those dusty old laws that we've told ourselves as modern people. We don't need to really listen to those anymore. They're not truly relevant to us anymore. And he brings it up because he wants to make one very clear point. And here it is, and you can write it in your notes. Jesus wants us to know that God's laws and limits are still relevant. They're still real. They still apply to those disciples 2,000 years ago, to you and me today. And we are never going to get to a point, Jesus says, where you're so modern, you're so developed, you're so evolved that you don't need to listen to those commandments anymore. Nope, it's not going to happen. You need those commandments to reinforce your conscience, to teach you again and again what God wants from you, what God wants for you. And that this is really the way to a healthy, thriving life. So he reinforces it. Here's, I want to answer why do humans so often think that God's word and God's laws are not all that relevant anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to put a quote up for you. I'm going to put a quote up for you. <laughs> there it is. Edward T. Welch, Christian himself, he, uh, he writes this. If we think we are usually good, focus right here, then God is usually what? Say it to me. Irrelevant. This is Edward Welch's, this is his observation. Why do we think God doesn't, God's word and God's law doesn't apply to us? Because, as we often say in culture, people are mostly good most of the time. I'm mostly good most of the time. That's what our culture tells us. And so if I'm mostly good most of the time, why do I need to be reminded of what God calls right and wrong? It becomes irrelevant because what I think is right and wrong is what is right and wrong for me. I don't need to hear from God. Such thinking ignores the depths of sin in my own heart. Think about that. Are we really mostly good most of the time? And just make the occasional mistake or error, commit the occasional sin? Edward T. Welch, reading the Bible, says that's not who we are or how we are at all. Don't ignore the depths of sin in your own heart. And in essence, it elevates me so that I'm just a mildly flawed imitation of God rather than someone completely, completely dependent on Him. Do we understand our condition or are we tempted to denial? What is it like for anyone when they go to the doctor's office and they hear for the very first time, unsuspecting, 
you have cancer. Does it take a while for that to sink in? Because as human beings, one of the ramifications of being deeply flawed is that we want to naturally deny our true condition and how serious it is. And, and, and that's what this quote is telling us. The first thing is to get out of denial and recognize how serious our condition of sin is. Take a look at Matthew 5.18, same chapter that we're studying today. What does Jesus say here? For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. What Jesus is saying is, my law, my word will always be relevant. Some of you remember the old uh, King James will remember the words, not one jot, smallest Hebrew letter, or one tittle, a little scribble, a vowel sign, will disappear from the law. Why not? Because we always need it to be reminded of our true condition as sinners. Serious sinners. Not, not, just, not, not just light, occasional, once in a while I make a, a boo-boo. But seriously in sin and headed for death. That's the condition the Bible presents us with that we need to make sure we're not in denial of. So let's, let's move on. What does that mean for us? Here's what I want to uh, talk about. The impossibility, the rank impossibility of keeping God's law. And how does Jesus emphasize that? He doesn't say it the way he could have said it. Hey, guys, want you to know it's just impossible, flat-out impossible, because of the sin that's in your heart for you to follow my law. Those commandments, you will never, you will never be able to, to follow them. Jesus doesn't do it that way. He does it in a much more interesting, teachable moment way. He says, hey, you've heard that command, don't commit adultery. But I'm going to tell you, and I'll read it, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. First of all, he said, never be frustrated or anger to the point of calling someone an idiot or a fool. And now he says, don't even look at an... Do you know how tough that is? I think most of you know how tough that is, don't you? I'll confess I know how tough that is. You're in the supermarket not thinking anything about lust, and you get to the checkout counter, and at the end of the checkout counter are those magazines with mostly... Well, not mostly, but half-naked women or men on them. I, I have a, a, a young man now that I'm counseling, a man that uh, I've known since he was in high school. I taught him in high school. And he's married, actually, to another high school classmate. 
And he is trying so hard to be faithful to, the, to this commandment. And he, he says, Pastor, I'm, I'm trying to develop a habit of really not even looking at members of the opposite sex. N- not only because I know it's spiritually unhealthy for me, but also because it hurts my wife when she sees me glancing at a member of the opposite sex, and I don't want to do that to her. And the weird thing is, Pastor, the more I try not to even glance at a member of the opposite sex, mm, there, I, there I am staring at a member of the opposite sex again. You know what he's being? Authentic, real. And, and it might not be that this particular sin is the one that the devil has you most wrapped around. It might be as it had been in the past for me and still can be in the present for me, your temper. The reason I've murdered a lot of people in my life because I have a bad temper. Not so much anymore by the grace of God through his forgiveness and grace, but boy, when I was young, it, it, go down through the commandments, and, and several of them at least are probably struggles for you. And that's because of this. Take, take a look at this passage from Jeremiah. The heart, this is your natural condition, am I? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That young man that I'm counseling, I just I want him to memorize that passage. He so sincerely and deeply as a Christ follower wants to be obedient. But he's got a heart problem. We all have a heart problem. Our heart wants to deceive us with the devil's lies and make us believe that things that are not okay with God are really okay because we're modern people. We know better. This is the way to happiness. And so Jesus comes and says, no, these commandments are so relevant. God's word is so relevant. Because sin isn't just that deepest level of sin where you're committing the full-on action of adultery or of anger. It applies to just that thought that quickly skates its way across your mind and your heart. And Jesus says, when that thought skates its way across your heart and mind, do you know what that looks like in God's eyes? It looks like you've gone the whole distance. So what conclusion does that lead us to? Oh boy, I'm in trouble is where it leads me to. Oh boy, I am sinful is where it leads me to. And I hope it's where it leads you to as well. Because Dr. Phil said it so well many, many, many times on his show. You can't change what you don't acknowledge. You want life to change? To be on a track where you're, where you're thriving? Where life is good? You can't get there, and Jesus says this too, you can't get there unless you're willing to acknowledge 
the problem, the issue of sin. That has to be confronted honestly and openly. And the fact is, Isaiah 53, we all like sheep. We all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has sought his own way. So here's, here's the next thing. Jesus wants us to understand the impossibility of defeating sin by human power or authority. So why does he give us all this instruction? Don't commit adultery. Don't, don't murder each other if he knows this is true. And he does know this is true. Let me put a picture up for you. There is a solution to this problem of sin. Anybody recognize what that is? Come on, some of you were with me in the 60s, weren't you? That's an old school bomb shelter. It even says it if you squint real hard on the door, bomb shelter. It has a little symbol that means here's where you go if there's nuclear war going to be much better than just ducking under your desk as we were taught to do in school. And you know why it's going to be much better? Because it's made of hardened concrete and as you can see buried under soil and when nuclear fallout happens it's going to settle and you'll be safe inside this hardened concrete. And because it's built to withstand even nuclear radiation Guess how many doors it has to the outside? Well, you might count that as two, but I'm going to tell you that's one. So you can see it has at least one door, and it has no more doors. Because every door is an opening that radiation can leak into. Now imagine you're in there, and you're thinking to yourself, i gotta, I got to find a way out. And you are, as Isaiah 53 says, a guy who wants to go your own way. Like sheep, we have all gone astray. I see a door there, but no, there's got to be another way. And so you're hammering away at the hardened concrete, trying to find the other exit that doesn't exist. And there's this hardened concrete all around you. There's only one door. There's only one way out. Do you know what God's law is? God's law is like the hardened concrete of a bomb shelter that God intentionally puts around you. It's, it's not... The primary purpose of God's law, the commandments, is not really to show you how to live so that you can make God happy and get God to be in relationship with you and win your way to heaven by how obedient you are. We can't be obedient. So then why does God, why does Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount keep hammering away at God's law? Because he's building a bomb shelter around you that only has one door. Remember what Jesus says? I am the gate. I am the door. If you want a way to the Father, if you want a way to everlasting life, let me show you how impossible it is for you to be obedient. 
And he keeps building this hard concrete wall around us so that we get out of denial and into the realization, thank God there's a door. What is that door? Put that Ephesians passage up. Here's the door. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, not by obedience to the commandments, so that no one can boast. God's grace expressed to us in Jesus Christ. The cross and the empty tomb, that's the door. And as I mentioned just a few moments ago, it's exactly what Jesus tells us. I'm the gate. I'm, do you guys know this passage? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's super abundantly clear that we need a champion to stand in our place, to keep God's law in our place. And that's your next fill-in, point three. So let's, let's wrap up by talking just a little bit about this one single door, this champion who comes like David for the children of Israel and stands before the Goliath of our sin. Here's what Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What's Jesus saying there? All of you who've had high school English may remember the term hyperbole. Do you remember that term? What does it mean? It means you're exaggerating for the sake of an effect, typically to grab someone's attention. Now, part of this is not hyperbole. When, when Jesus says, look, the dire nature of our sinfulness leads to dire results and consequences for eternity. When he says, you're headed to hell in your sins, that's not hyperbole, that's real. And, and it's factually true that it would be better to cut off our hand than to lose our entire self in eternity for hell. That, that is true. To gouge out an eye would be better than to not be able to enjoy the many blessings of hell. But where does that end? This is why we know that what Jesus is saying is hyperbole. If my hand is sinful, well, how did my hand get on the thing that it wants to do something with that's sinful? My arm had to lift it, so do I cut off my arm too? I mean, what's the logical conclusion. My feet carried me into sin. Do I cut my feet off and the legs that brought my feet there, do I cut them off too? And now I'm a quadriplegic trying to avoid sin. I'm also blind and I'm deaf because my ears like to listen to sinful things. Where does this go? And, and the reality is Jesus knows this. Your hand doesn't cause you to sin. Your eye doesn't cause you to sin. Your heart and your mind are what cause you to sin. That heart that is deceitful beyond all things, that's what causes sin. 
And so do we find a heart surgeon? Do we do a frontal lobotomy? Where does it end if that's the real solution? What is Jesus really trying to do? He's trying to build a bomb shelter of hardened concrete with his law to say, do you realize how serious your sin is and how dire the consequences are? But listen up, guys. Standing before you preaching this message on a mountainside is the door through that hardened concrete. Jesus standing before them, teaching them, is the gospel in person, the good news in person, God's grace in the flesh. And as he's teaching them, as he's teaching us, he's really trying to close off all the potential doorways we, with our meandering hearts and minds, think that we would prefer. Remember, we're frontiersmen spiritually, wanting to cut our own path to God. Remember, we're those wandering sheep seeking our own way. And Jesus says, go ahead, go ahead, keep bumping yourself up against the hardened concrete. But when you're ready and you want a real solution, I'm the door. I'm the way, the truth, the life for you, and the only door. And so Jesus teaches this in a way that can't help but grab your attention so that it gets you saying, man, I'm in trouble, but thank God there's a way, there's an answer, there's God's grace that we are saved by. Take a look at Jocko Willink, because clearly what Jesus is saying here is sin requires a radical solution. That's the real message. But what is that radical solution? Is it for you to put net nanny on your computer so you can't look at porn anymore? Well, I'm not saying that's a bad idea. But I am going to tell you that at the heart and mind level, that's not the real solution. That might keep your hand and your eye out of sin, but it won't keep your heart out of sin. So what is the radical solution? Jocko Willink wrote this book, Extreme Ownership. What's the, how do we really take extreme ownership of our sin? Former Navy SEAL, and he, he participated in this study about on a battlefield, what is the most radical change you could make to win the battlefield and win the battle? And listen to what he says. The greatest of these conclusions from this study was recognition that leadership is the most important factor on the battlefield. You and I are fighting sin. Leadership is the most important factor on our battlefield with sin. The single greatest reason behind the success of any team. At the end of the day, the most radical change we can make is from trying to be the leaders of our own selves, which only ends in disaster, and put our faith in Jesus. Let him be the leader of our lives. Let him be the champion that we so need to step up in our place like David stepped up for the children of Israel and he was their champion and their savior when he sent that stone 
through Goliath's head. And you have that champion. You have that leader. You have that savior. You have that door, that way, that truth, that life. And his name is Jesus Christ. And his solution is, by grace we're saved through faith. Not by our own works, not of ourselves, but by him alone. Write this down. Jesus wants us to be prepared to take radical action, and that radical action is simple. Make Jesus the leader of your life because sin's consequences are real. John 8, 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me, that is, whoever is willing for me to be their leader, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What's your next step? Take the most radical possible action you can against sin because it's so dire and dangerous in its consequences for you. And what is the most radical action you can take? Change leaders. Some of you know how radical that is if you heard anything from yesterday in the news. Right? Regime change in Russia? What? What did he just say? And it, it sounded like such radical action, because it is radical action. We need regime change in our hearts. And make Jesus the leader of our hearts. With the Spirit's help, here's your next step. I will continue to trust in Jesus as my champion, Savior, and leader. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for the hardened concrete you place all around us to help us realize there's no way back to you, no way into heaven and to eternal life apart from your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room hears Jesus and his forgiveness and his grace today and sees him as the one person who should be in gracious control of his heart, her mind, and of all of our eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Join with me, if you will, in this ancient statement of belief that also points us to Jesus. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.